Apostle Peter that we uh, looked at two weeks ago, this great announcement that he made, even if they all fall away, I will not. If I must die with you, I will not deny you. These were the self-confident words of Peter in response to Jesus, who said, a time was coming when all the disciples would abandon him and deny him. This morning we're going to see, sadly, that self-confident Peter was not as strong as he thought. Last time we were in Mark's gospel, we saw there at the start or the middle part of chapter 14, a clear contrast was drawn between the strength of Jesus in Gethsemane and the weakness of his disciples wrapped around that account of Jesus in Gethsemane. We saw the strength of Jesus and the weakness of the disciples. Well, this week, we're going to see another clear contrast drawn between the strength of Jesus and the weakness now, not of the disciples in general, but the weakness of one disciple, Peter. This is a message about the strength of Jesus and the weakness of Peter. In a way, there are two trials in this section of the gospel. You would read this and think this is a, the, the, the passage that speaks of Jesus on trial before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish leaders. And that's right. But in a way, Peter himself is on trial in this account that we're in this morning. In Jesus' trial, in verses 53 down to 65, we see Jesus called on to bear witness to who he is. In Peter's trial, from verse 66 down to 72, Peter's asked to bear witness to who he is. One man on trial stands and passes the test. Another fails miserably. The whole account of Mark 14, 53 to 72 is structured to draw a sharp contrast between Jesus on trial and Peter on trial. You see that the way the account is introduced. In verses 53 and 54, we're introduced to the two men on trial, the two contexts wherein the trials will take place, and the witnesses to the trial. Look at verse 53, introducing us to this trial of Jesus. They led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Then verse 54, here's the new man on trial, Peter. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Those are like two titles to the two trials. Then in verses 55 to 65, you get the formal trial of Jesus, who stands firm when he's called to witness under pressure. And then in 66 to 72, we track the informal trial of Peter, who sadly crumbles when the pressure to bear witness to Jesus 
is on. We could say in many ways that this passage is a study in witnessing under pressure, how to do it and how not to do it. The contrast is set up so that we will behold the stability and glory of the strength of Christ and behold the weakness of Peter, the crumbling rock. But we're not just to stand back and observe that as distant observers. Remember, the disciples in this gospel are a picture of us, modern-day disciples. Their story is our story. And in seeing Peter's weakness in this account, we're going to see our own. In Peter's putting himself ahead of Jesus in the text, we're going to see the many ways that we do that. We've done that this week. In his brokenness, we're to feel our own brokenness. But contrasting that, we're also to find hope in the strong Savior who did not fail where we have failed. So we're going to look at the two trials in turn this morning, seeing the faithfulness of Jesus in his trial, the faithlessness of Peter in his. But then where I want to land this all at the end is I want us to see together that though Peter's failure was bad, that failure did not ultimately define him. And the greatest news for each of us today is also this simple truth. Our failures do not define us. That is the greatest news for the Christian. You think of your failures, your mess, all your mistakes, they don't define you in Christ. That is wonderful news. So let's get straight into this first trial. Let's see the strength of Jesus as he stands on trial, verses 53 to 65. Remember the last scene and how it closed there in 43 to 52, with the disciples fleeing as Jesus was arrested by the hired mob. Now in verse 53, we read, the mob led Jesus to a specially gathered assembly of the Jewish religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. We know for quite some time they've been jealous of Jesus and wanting to get rid of him. Now they've got him in their hands. After the movements of Jesus are reported in verse 53, as I mentioned, the focus shifts to the movements of Peter. And you can imagine Peter's story here. He fled initially with the other disciples, but you could imagine him at some point perhaps running and saying, hang on, what am I doing? I'm Peter. What am I doing running and hiding? I said I wouldn't deny him. Right, I'm going to follow. And he plucks up the courage and he decides to follow Jesus from a distance, we're told. But there are a couple of things that are supposed to sound pretty ominous to hear as we read of Peter's following from a distance. I think we're to see straight away Peter has already exchanged costly and close discipleship, fellowship with Jesus for following Jesus at a distance. And I think just right away, let's make an application here. That is something that if we're not careful, we can find ourselves doing. I wonder if there's anyone here this morning and used to walk very closely with Jesus, have lovely fellowship with him. You would take risks to stand for him. But now, all you do is play it safe from a distance. Well, be careful because it was first distance for Peter and then it was denial. 
The second thing we're to notice here that's quite ominous is that while Jesus is facing the trial all alone, Peter's depicted as making himself comfortable and cozy by the fire. A couple of times in this text, you read of Peter warming himself by the fire, and I think you're supposed to see, while Jesus is standing there isolated and alone and being attacked, Peter's there cozying himself by the fire. He kind of fits in a bit too comfortably with those who arrested Jesus, almost as if he's one of them. But we're left at the end there of verse 54, wondering what's going to happen to Peter. Because the others have fled, but he has, he's still there. Is he going to jump in at the last minute and save the day? Is he going to see Jesus on trial being carried out? And maybe, maybe Peter the rock is going to jump in and he's going to be heroic. But we just don't know because what Mark now does very skillfully is he leaves Peter in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire, and the focus shifts completely to Jesus on trial. In verse 55, we are told straight away of the biased nature of this whole trial of Jesus procedure. The religious leaders are seeking testimony that would give them a reason to put Jesus to death. There's nothing impartial about this trial. The verdict had been pronounced before it had even begun. The kangaroo court just wanted an excuse to be able to hand Jesus over to the Romans and to request the death penalty. But even in such a kangaroo court, the leaders ran into a problem. They couldn't get their witness statements to agree. They'd call perhaps someone in to give a statement, and then that person would go out, and they'd call the next guy in to give a statement, and the statements didn't all match up because they were kind of making them up. In verse 56, we're told that many bore false witness against Jesus, but their stories didn't add up. They couldn't get traction, something to get Jesus on. In verse 57, they tried to charge him of a sacrilegious attitude towards the temple, but again, they couldn't get their stories all to match up to the point where we give them something to really charge Jesus before the Roman authorities. So then in verse 60, we read of the high priest standing up and asking Jesus what his response is to all these accusations being leveled against him. The high priest says, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But we read powerfully that Jesus remained silent and made no answer. You can picture that, can't you? It's very vivid. On one level, Jesus' silence speaks of his innocence and that their accusations are not worthy of a response. But on another, we are to hear the echoes of the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied of the coming Messiah Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7, saying he would be oppressed and afflicted, and yet he would open not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. We are to behold in the silence of Jesus his strength, his courage, his surrender to the cross, and his resolve to save us. Well, getting nowhere with the witnesses, the high priest then comes at Jesus from another angle. And at the end of verse 61, he asks him straight up, 
Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Now, that's a typical way to speak of God without using the divine name. The Jewish leaders would have considered God's name so high that they would often not use it, and they would find a kind of circumlocation or whatever, a way to say God without saying it. So they're saying, are you the Christ? Are you the Son of God? That is what they are asking Jesus directly. And here then, in verse 62, Jesus gives the clearest confession of his identity in all of the Gospels. Jesus said, without hesitation, reservation, or without any shadow of doubt, he just says, I am. Now that should strike us in Mark's gospel because up to this point, Jesus has been, remember, concealing his messianic identity for fear of people misunderstanding his mission. But now in the context of his suffering, he says, now you can understand what it means that I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. This is the kind of Christ Messiah, Savior, Son of God I am. Vilified, rejected, going to the cross. But I will be vindicated by my Father and you all are going to see it. Jesus says you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. What a statement. That is left ringing in the air. But it's too much for the high priest. In verse 63, we read, he does like a Hulk Hogan, that old wrestling. He tears his garments in rage. And he says, what further witnesses do we need? We've heard it from his own mouth. Blasphemy. And they all condemned him, we read, as deserving death. And now in verse 65, see the wild, beast-like rebellion that lurked underneath the veneer of religious respectability. Look at what started to happen. And some began to spit on him, on Jesus, to cover his face and to strike him so that he couldn't see where it was coming from. And they barked at him and shouted, prophesy! And the guards started beating him. You're to see real irony in this moment. Because they were shouting prophesy. And yet they were doing everything that Jesus had said would happen. Back in chapter 10, verse 33 and 34. Here's what Jesus said. See, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They'll condemn him to death. They will mock him, spit on him, and flog him. And they're saying prophesy. And he was living. A prophecy. Now, before we move now into the second trial in this narrative, Peter's trial, there's just something I don't want us to miss here. It's it's so obvious, but I just it needs to be spelled out. Let's not miss this one clear fact. The historical Jesus Christ was condemned to death because he claimed to be the Son of God. 
That's such a simple, obvious statement, but it needs to be said. Because so many people today will say, Jesus is just another good moral teacher among other moral teachers. He's one guide, and then you've got these other guides along the way. Jesus lived a great life. Brilliant. I I, I would love to, to sort of live the way Jesus lived. That's great that Jesus is such a man. What we need to recognize is that Jesus never claimed to be just a good moral leader. He claimed to be the Son of God, the historic Jesus who walked on this earth. He was crucified because of that claim to be more than just a man. And we have to each ask ourselves, what do we do with this Jesus? Was he the Son of God? Is he the Son of God? Was he a liar? Was he totally self-deceived? What do you do with Jesus? You probably remember or have heard those famous words from C.S. Lewis, who said the one thing we must not do with Jesus is say he was only a good moral teacher. Quoting Lewis, he says, A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, Lewis says. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So maybe we need to just each return to the central question of this book and ask again, who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus asked that to his disciples in the very spine of this gospel, who do you say I am? When the pressure was on to bear witness to his own identity and mission, Jesus, surrounded by intimidating men who had the power to sentence him to death, testified boldly to the truth. He didn't cave to the fear of man. He stood forth in his trial, a mighty, sovereign, gentle Savior who was taking our place so that we would not have to go to our own cross. Now let's move on before we land this all. Let's move on to the trial of Peter and just observe what's going on here, seeing the weakness of Peter, the rock who crumbles in the midst of his own trial. We're going to look at Peter, see what happens, see his weakness, and then, as I say, reflect this all to ourselves. So if you look down there at verse 66, the scene returns very powerfully. It is very well written. Um, it, it, it is so dramatic. The scene shifts to the lower courtyard where Peter is warming himself to the fire. A servant girl, we're told, joins a circle of people around the fire. If you imagine that kind of one of those movies where you see a fire in a barrel, that kind of idea. A servant girl joins a circle of people warming themselves around the fire And in the orange light of the flickering fire on his face, she's like, huh, I know him. And she says to to him in verse 67, you also were with the Nazarene Jesus. 
And here we are, Peter's moment to shine. The others have fled, and all the other disciples have run and are far away. He's followed. Here now is his opportunity to fulfill the promise he made to Jesus. Even if I have to die, I will never deny you. Here he can live up to his name, the rock. But oh, how sad verse 68 is. In front of a wee servant girl. He was afraid, and he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. It's sad, isn't it? How strong we can imagine ourselves to be when the smallest bit of pressure's on we can be embarrassed to bear witness. Look at what we read then in the rest of of that verse. Verse 68. And he went out into the gateway and the rooster crowed. Now his movement here says so much. He's moving farther away from Jesus at the moment when he should be taking his stand. The first rooster crow should have been a warning to him, but it's as if Peter didn't even notice it. He's locked into a path of denial and sin, and that can happen. You can be so locked into a kind of hard-hearted state that you fail to hear the warnings. Well, in verse 69, the wee servant girl sees him again. And she started to say to the others, you can imagine this, it's very Northern Irish actually the way she gets on. Here, that fella there, he was one of them. Did you see that fella? And you can imagine how stressed Peter must have been. People started to talk. And so in verse 70, we get a second denial. He denied it. Then the bystanders themselves got involved. And this dangerous situation for Peter started to escalate quickly. Certainly you're one of them, they said, for you're a Galilean. They heard in his accent that he was from Galilee. And in verse 71, Peter loses it. He begins to invoke, we're told, a curse on himself and to swear. Now, I say this reverently, but it's, it's as if he would have said today something like, God damn it, I don't know him. started to invoke this strong language. He totally lost his cool. And then with those angry words of Peter's hanging in the air that I don't know him, he hears the rooster. You can imagine it, can't you? Dawn must be near as this trial was going on through the night. And the rooster crows And Peter certainly heard that second rooster. And he felt conviction slice deep into his conscience. And he remembered in that moment what Jesus had said. It's as if it all suddenly struck him what had just happened. Jesus had said before the rooster crows twice, you'll deny me three times. 
and then we read, and it could make you weep yourself, he broke down and wept. Now, that is no light cry. That is the cry of a broken sinner seeing the state of his broken heart. Peter, the rock, had crumbled. He was not as strong as he first thought, and he was totally broken over this exposure of his weakness. Jesus had known Peter's heart better than Peter ever did. And you know, the reality for each of us is that Jesus knows our hearts far better than each of us do. We have the same heart by nature as Peter. Paul would actually address this reality later on when he would write to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest you fall. You see, we've got to be so, so careful that we don't stand in a sense of overconfidence. Prayerlessness often demonstrates that we're overconfident. We can get on as if, like, yeah, I'd never do that. I would never commit this sin or that sin or do this or do that. I would never drift away and deny the Lord. Well, it won't happen necessarily overnight. It could be a series of small putting yourself before Jesus. A series of doing that over and over again where one day you wake up and you're starting to wonder, is any of this even real? We must learn from Peter's overconfidence. Not to be overconfident ourselves, but to recognize that our only hope of persevering, of standing strong, of not falling, is that we rely and look to a God who holds us. We say, I'm not looking to myself to stand firm. My hope is that, Lord, you will keep me strong. We've got to be praying that. Lord, keep me going. Keep me steadfast. Keep me persevering, Lord. Left to myself, I'll do a Peter. Keep me, Lord. So as we turn to learn some lessons from this account, let's recognize that Peter's big problem here was fear of man. Now, understandably, there was a serious threat in front of him. His fear of man hindered his witness. And let's just ask ourselves, does that ever happen to us? I know what happens to me. Fear of what people think can hold us back from standing boldly and speaking for the Lord. And it's amazing how we're wired. Just like for Peter, it was a little servant girl. It can be someone we don't even know, and for some reason, we're worried that they're going to think we're a weirdo. We're embarrassed for some reason of speaking for Jesus in front of the man that comes to read the electric meter or the guy that knocks on the door and says, do you want to change and switch from SSE to Electric Ireland? And we might feel in that moment, I'd love to tell him something about Jesus, but you're almost afraid to. Why are you afraid of what he thinks of you? You don't even know him. It's like the wee servant girl. And yet I feel it like you feel it for some reason. There's something in that moment that can hold us back. 
fear of man is a very powerful thing. We all struggle with it. And yet it's something we want to, 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 to pray about and ask God to help us not to be obnoxious and to ram the gospel at people, but to graciously and hopefully always be looking for opportunities to speak of the hope that we have in Jesus, not because we must or because we feel guilt-tripped into it, but because everyone is an evangelist of what they love. If you try a new chocolate bar, what will you say to someone, have you tried that chocolate bar? It's absolutely amazing. You're an evangelist of what you love. So Peter's big problem here is fear of man. He was putting himself before his call to witness for Jesus. He was putting his comfort before being made uncomfortable in witnessing for Jesus. And again, how often do we do that? Well, I don't want to feel uncomfortable. And I don't want others to feel uncomfortable. Again, we're gracious, we're gentle, we're respectful. But let's not let fear or cowardice hold us back. Let's battle those things. I know it's not easy, but let's, let's try and ask the Lord to strengthen us and help us in these areas. Now, though we may not have exercised such a dramatic public denial as Peter, some may have done so. Though we may not have done something as dramatic as Peter here, we have, we know, all at times succumbed to fear of man and have crumbled when we stood, should have stood strong for the Lord. If you think about it, in Peter's, deny, in, in Peter's denying Jesus, Jesus so easily could have in turn, reject, in turn rejected Peter, and he could reject us for our denial of him. Think about it. This sin is something that we could be justly condemned for, putting ourselves and our comfort before bearing witness for Jesus. Jesus could have said, right, Peter, you're done. That's it. You said, even if you had to die, you'd never deny me. You blew it. No longer my disciple, you're out. But here is what is amazing in Mark's gospel. Even though Peter sinned in this way, and absolutely blew it. This was not the end of Peter's story. And I hope, like me, you feel a sort of hallelujah in your heart because this is, this is our story. You see, while Peter was denying Jesus, Jesus was dying for Peter. Get your head around that. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. And Jesus, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, had predicted this denial. He had even said to Peter elsewhere, Satan has demanded to sift you as wheat. But take heart, I've prayed for you. And when you turn, when you return, when you turn back, strengthen your brothers. You see, Jesus knew that Peter would sin this way. He knew that all the disciples would sin and deny him. But do you remember what he said back there in chapter 14? Verse 28. 
you're all going to deny me, you're all going to run, but after I'm raised up, I'll go before you to Galilee. Jesus said, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, even though you're all going to blow it and mess up and sin so awfully, I'm still going to be waiting for you on the other side in Galilee, ready to gather you as my people. And now, if you're Peter, you might start to think to yourself, well, yeah, he said that, but it doesn't apply to me. That's so often how Christians battle with their assurance. I know all the truth, but maybe it doesn't apply to me. Well, that's where Peter was. But at the end of this gospel in chapter 16, and I've been wrestling this because I don't want to steam a thunder from Easter Sunday morning, but we'll have to go here now. I just want you to see the glory of the grace of God in this statement. In chapter 16, Jesus puts a statement into an angel's mouth, basically, and sends a messenger to go and speak to the women at the mouth of the empty tomb. And uh, in chapter 16, verse 7, here's what the angel says to those women. Post-resurrection, he's announced the resurrection of Christ, and then he says, now go. Tell his disciples, and what? And Peter. Tell the disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. This is glorious. So what has happened here is you've got Jesus predicts the denial. The disciples say, no, 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 we'll never do that. They feel him miserably, but he's already said, but after that, I'll still be there. On the other side of the cross, in resurrection victory, standing as your Savior, your Lord, your Shepherd, and I'll, I'll not count your sins against you. I'll be there. And for Peter, who might have been saying, yeah, 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 that applies to all them, but there's no point in me even going because I blew it out so badly that he won't want to see me. Jesus puts a message in the mouth of the angel that day, and he says, you tell the disciples and Peter. I want Peter to know he's still in. There's room in my kingdom for Peter's. And I'm telling you, that is the greatest news in the universe. You have never messed up so badly that you're beyond the reach of grace. Now you think of your failures, you think of your mess, think of your sin, your cold heart, think of yourself even this week. Those failures in the eyes of the Lord don't define you. Jesus says, I know your failures. I know your heart. I know the way you act. And yet I died for you. And I'm standing here now as your Lord and your Savior, ready to gather you. That is grace. That is the gospel. Jesus wants that Peter to know and all of us Peters to know there's room in his kingdom for failures. Peter was broken. You know, Peter had to be broken. Sometimes God has to break us 
so that we'll finally surrender to our need of grace. See, it's so easy for us still to think, I earn God's favor, or I'm a good religious upstanding person. Here's my question this morning. Have you been broken? It's a part of someone becoming a Christian. Have you ever been broken? Broken in your heart because of the Holy Spirit exposing to you the reality of your, your sin. You're broken heart and, and you, you just are broken. That's, that's a picture here of, of Peter's brokenness. It's a picture of, of any sinner's brokenness when they really get it. Have you seen the state of your sinful heart? Or are you still just a religious, respectful person, socially being brought up in the church, and you call yourself a Christian, and you go on well, but there's no brokenness, no love for Jesus in your heart? Peter had to be broken because of his pride. He was still saying, I can do it. I can be the man Jesus wants me to be. I can earn it. I'll stand there strong when everyone else fails. He was still too self-confident, still too full of his own ability to be the man Jesus wanted him to be. He had to be broken so that he would realize he couldn't do it. And then he was ready for a savior. And that's the story of every Christian. But think of where Peter's story would go from here. It's incredible. Restored by Jesus from the breakfast in the mornings. Remember at the end of John's gospel? Fish around a charcoal fire. Only two places you read of a charcoal fire in the gospels. Peter's denial, three times. Peter's restoration on the beach with Jesus. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Peter's restored by Jesus. Recommissioned. Go and feed my sheep. Go and be the man of God that I've made you to be. And then think of Peter on Pentecost, he's told to stop preaching in Jesus' name. And listen to what Peter says in Acts 5.29. We must obey God rather than man. Isn't it brilliant? He's learned his lesson. I'm not going to blow it again. We must obey God rather than fear what people think of us. And then he himself, along with the other apostles, were flogged because of their stand for Jesus. And here's what we read in Acts 5. And they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. That's a whole different gravy. We're afraid to open our mouths to the electric man at the door. Now, I'm just telling you, that's my story. I battle him. I've got this guy. He's here. I want to give him a track. I want to tell him about Jesus. And I'm always going, right, just got to do it. And that may not be your approach I'm so often with Christians, I'm like a dog with a bone when I get to a non-Christian. I'm just like, I need to tell them, you know, I want to, and I battle with it. And so, any chance, I want to make sure I don't miss it. But I'm telling you, that's a whole other ballgame when you start thinking, the shame for Jesus is in honor. Because he took the shame. To be like him in his death is an honor. Peter was a broken sinner that day. But here's the truth. God took hold of him and remade him. And he made him more beautiful after he was broken. You know, there's a, a type of bowl um, pottery that's made in uh, Japanese pottery. This might seem a bit random, but it's beautiful. Um, Japanese pottery, it's called kintsugi, 
which means put back together with gold. And you can buy these kits if you were to Google it, you'd see it. Kintsugi is a type of pottery where you actually have a pot, but you break it. And then you use gold to put it back together so that the finished product is actually more beautiful for having been broken. That's Peter's story, that's your story, that's my story. Made more beautiful after having been broken. Peter was put back together with gold. And our God today is still in the business of taking broken sinners, failures like Peter, failures like you and me. He takes us, he loves us, he welcomes us, he remakes us, he uses us, he says, there's a place in my kingdom for you, and I will make you more beautiful now that you have been broken. Do you know this story of Peter's as your own story? Our failures do not define us. Our failures become the foundations that make us. And that is only possible because of the Jesus who did not fail on his trial where we failed in ours. He stayed silent to go all the way through for us so that though failed, we can be remade by grace. And then not just remade, but used by him to accomplish his purposes, given such dignity to be made beautiful vessels fit for the use of the master. So let's this morning respond and come up out of our text. And let's recognize that our failures don't define us because of the incredible grace of God that now defines us. Let's go into this week and depend on God's preserving grace to keep us. And let's pray and demonstrate that we are not overconfident in ourselves, but we are relying on grace. And let's go out in our brokenness rejoicing that we've been put back together with gold, with the accomplishments of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And let's go out thankful in our hearts to a God of amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, the two trials in this narrative are so striking because of their contrast. The failure of Peter and the steadfastness of Jesus. Lord, that's our hope that though we have sinned and fallen short of your glory, you do not count our sins against us in your Son. Lord, if you were to mark our transgressions, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness. And we receive that forgiveness again this morning. We're thankful for it, Lord. 
and we can go out of here broken yet put together again, healed by the blood of Jesus, put back together with something far better than gold. And Lord, we do pray that you would continue to make us broken, repaired, beautiful, healed sinners, knowing that our failures don't define us, but your grace defines us, and that you say, I'm still here for you. Of having gone through the cross, standing in victory over death, I'm standing here for you. And thank you that you still welcome Peters like us when you could so easily have said, you're done. Oh Lord, break us again and remake us that we may have a fervent love for the one who loved us and gave himself for us. And if there's anyone here this morning that doesn't know themselves what it is to be broken and put together by Jesus, Father, we ask that you would do the breaking work and the rebuilding and the making beautiful for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, I wanted us to respond by just singing uh, a thank you to the Lord for all he has done for us. So we're gonna stand now and respond with the words of the mystery of the cross.
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Father, we thank you for this reality, and now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore.